0: This is the Climate Alarm Clock, and I'm Anna Pringle, and I am delighted to be bringing you a special episode today. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that we often ask each other questions like, why do people not care enough about climate change? How do we cope with all the bad news? And we have been asked by listeners to explore those topics more, and so we're going to devote this episode to the psychology of climate change. And I have two very special guests with me to explore those topics with us. Owen Gallivan is a senior clinical and counselling psychologist. He's on the board of Kiri Farm Therapeutic Farm. And he's also written and spoken a lot about the need for psychology as a profession to be engaged with climate change and is doing some work with the Psychological Society of Ireland on that. And he'll tell us a little bit more about that shortly. You're very welcome, Owen. We're delighted to have you on.
1: Thank you so much, Anna.
0: And I'm also thrilled to welcome Katrina Kenny back onto the programme. One of our favourite programmes from last season, I think, um, was on Connecting Cabra and lots of people were very inspired by it. Katrina is a climate communicator and she is the chair of Connecting Cabra, which is a community initiative on Dublin's north side. And Katrina describes herself as human, mother, warrior and nature lover. So she has a lot of perspective um, to bring to this discussion as well. So welcome back, Katrina.
2: Delighted to be back, Anna.
0: I might just start then with you, Owen, and ask us just to give you... give. Tell us about yourself and how you got involved in being interested in climate change.
1: Thank you so much. Um, Wow. I suppose, uh, first of all, I I came at this subject as a dad, I think, first, rather than a psychologist. Uh, So I I never had intended to point myself um, as a psychologist towards the issue of climate change. So it it kind of happened to me rather than me making a professional decision, uh, like it's happening to a lot of people, I think, that you start paying attention uh, maybe something resonates a bit more, it gets under your skin, you, you learn a bit more about it, and you kind of go down the rabbit hole. And tumbling down the rabbit hole is a good analogy, actually. You know, the idea that you son- somehow, somehow encounter reality in a slightly different way and realize that the way that we're living and the damage that we're doing to the environment is of such scale And of such personal importance, which I hadn't really resonated. I mean, I knew about climate change, like most people. You ask people and surveys demonstrate this now for a long time. Is climate change real? Yes. Is it serious? Yes. Are you concerned about it? Yeah. Have you made any changes in your life? Not really. I'm kind of waiting for something to happen.
0: Yeah. Or I don't (laughs) know what to do.
1: I'm waiting, I'm waiting to, you know, for a nudge or a shove or something. Um. So for, for some reason things got under my skin. And the reason I say it got it got to me as a dad was because I started to to kind of see it through the eyes of my children's future, I suppose. And that's when the time frame started to really land. I was thinking, gosh, my my 10-year-old or 11 year old will will only be 21 when these kind of catastrophic predictions are going to come to pass. And um it really resonated differently with me, I suppose. And that idea of it being something that you can put off into the future forever more. Uh, kind of ran aground uh, internally and I decided okay this is something and I suppose after a kind of a personal reckoning with my reckoning with my own uh, lifestyle you know kind of the the way that I'm living um, making some changes there I began to reflect on the notion that there is a psychology at play in the fact that we are stuck isn't this interesting that we are being faced with this uh, news of our demise and we have all the solutions and we're doing it and we're not stopping. I mean, that's an extraordinary um, phenomenon to encounter. So, of course, there's a behavioral and a psychological uh, element to that. Uh, So, that's what kind of drew me in. And then we set up a a group in the Psychological Society of Ireland. Um, It turns out there's lots of other psychologists who are interested in this too, and lots of other people who are really concerned, and that number is growing and growing. Thankfully, I think there's a there's a really solid uptick in, in the movement, if you want, of people who are engaged in climate activism and thinking about climate change and being aware of it and being concerned of it, et cetera. So we, we put together a group uh, with some great people um, comprising of psychologists all over the country uh, from different points of view, including environmental psychology, of course. Um, and our goal in that group is to bring to public awareness the psychological factors that might be relevant to the climate crisis, whether in its creation or inertia, or the movement out, you know, how do we how do we progress forward? That's kind of how I got here.
0: So great, Owen, there's loads to unpack in everything you said there. And and fair play to you for getting involved in it and setting it up with the Psychological Society of Ireland, too. we will come back to a lot of that. Um, Katrina, do you want to just give us a brief introduction to yourself as well? Well, just firstly,
2: I'd like to say that I was nodding along to everything that you were saying there, Owen, and quite even even the fact that that's all being explored in your profession it fills me with hope and excitement, um, because it's often climate change climate action is often siloed and discussed as you know climate professionals or climate scientists' uh, field of study and I it's really heartening to know that other industries, other organisations, other uh, professions are waking up and seeing that it's not something that any of us can turn away from. Um, I suppose on me, I, uh, like my Twitter profile would say, I'm a, a mother and a worrier and a nature lover. But I suppose I came from a family that would be, you'd now consider consider us to be environmentalists. At the time, we just didn't have very much money and did care about uh Kind of not wasting anything. And uh, my mother would have been very frugal and um, careful with uh, what we used and what we wasted. So I grew up, you know, around activists and uh, protesters and uh, always was interested in how I could contribute to the protection of our planet. I was very scared about um, the hole in the ozone layer when I was in school, like lots of us were. And uh, saw that collective action led to that, you know, remedying itself to some degree. Um And yeah, as I had my children, similar to your cell phone, it, it made the crisis so much more real and scary and relevant to me and my family and our lives. And I wanted to know more about climate change. So I went back to college and studied um, the Masters in DCU. Um which filled me with fear and dread, but also hope and information uh, and knowledge. And that made me feel quite powerful. And now I am working in climate change education and yes, very much interested in how this subject can be spoken about and uh, discussed without instilling huge amounts of fear and uh, having people turn away from from the topic.
0: Yeah, great. Thanks, Katrina. And you're also, of course, doing great work in Connecting Cabra as well in so many ways and so many great initiatives there. Okay, so let's come back to then. I love the question that you posed to us, Owen, which is why are we stuck when it comes to climate change? Why are we stuck in terms of taking action, in terms of people getting engaged with it? Um, and I know you've written about this and you had some sort of interesting perspectives in uh, one of your blogs that I read Um and especially about how we were socialised into different behaviours and attitudes, and we may not even be aware that we are. And how much is, of that is that a factor? So I mean, what's your take now, having thought about it for a long time, about yeah. why we're stuck?
1: Well, there's there's loads of lenses on this that are psychological in nature that, that can illuminate uh, parts of our stuckness. And I'm cautious not to say explain why we're stuck, because I actually think the answer to that is quite a deep question. And so I'm just going to put some pieces in context before I go into the psychological because they're really important, even though I'm not going to illuminate on them too much. So things like our, hist- our colonial history, uh, which fostered a particular relationship with the natural world, uh, things like our current cultural predominant kind of characteristics, consumerism, uh, our current politics, neoliberalism. Uh, Our current economics, capitalism, these are massively powerful influences and shapers on how we live our lives. So one of the risks, if you want, in in, uh, focusing in on the psychological, the internal world of the individual, or even the interpersonal, is that it shifts attention away from these very, very deep and powerful contexts that lead to uh, very deep habituation and socialization into frames of mind and behaviors and ways of living such that when the awareness that what we're doing is destroying the planet comes along, it, it's a kind of a schism in our psyche. It's extraordinarily difficult to even allow ourselves know what is occurring because the awareness of what is occurring forces us to unhook ourselves from these very deep, uh, deeply held beliefs, attitudes, and socialized ways of living and, and behaving. Everything that we do, everything that we wear, everything that we eat, uh, all our working lives, uh, all our educations, everything is immersed in systems or, or cultures and or practices and economics that all our part of the problem and that's quite a thing to get your head around right i mean it's 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 kind of like the matrix in real life i I remember using that analogy going this is what it feels like it's like i've just discovered that everything in the world is broken and wrong and wow what a what a um, an upset so i mean when i said earlier tumbling down the rabbit hole the coming into consciousness of where we are in the world is exceptionally difficult psychologically and emotionally it can be upsetting. It's it can generate grief, anger, fear, a whole load of powerful emotions. And it also can lead to a sense of isolation and disconnect from the world that we have grown up to live in. So that sense of I don't really belong in this world anymore because I can see the damage that it's doing. So where do I belong now? How do I fit in? Uh, am I allowed to do my job anymore? Am I allowed to eat me dinner? Is going on holidays okay? Yeah, you
0: know, I a mean, lot of have fun.
1: Right. And the ground under us suddenly feels very, very uncertain. And you'll notice this if you try and bring up the conversation with people who um, aren't yet fully conscious of it, because naturally there's a resistance to that. Who wants that to be true? Like if you're relatively comfortable in an unknowing position of climate and all its implications. Uh, why would you why would you want to know unless it's literally tapping me on the shoulder like if your house isn't flooding now what's the motive uh and right now you're busy picking up the kids or making the dinner or doing the washing or whatever it is so it just seems like this very abstract kind of hard to get your head around um thing amorphous kind of problem off there in the in the ether somewhere and'm I'm, I'm busy so you know leave me alone i'm trying to get to work and it's, it's this is real kind of um, polarity between like climate activists who are out on the street for example blocking traffic um screaming their their heads off saying please would you pay attention you know we are literally destroying a habitable survivable planet and then other people going to work saying would you just get out of the way i'm busy and i think we all have an individual or individual version of that that we carry around where we're trying to get on with our daily lives and there's another part of us going oh my god has anyone noticed what's going on so we're all in some ways, we have the climate activist voice in our head, and that, oh, geez, would you be quiet? I'm trying to make the dinner.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> be quiet! I'm trying to record a podcast. Right.
1: Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And like, there, and it's such um, there's such dissonance around that because when you're aware of it, you can't unsee it, um, and, and yet you have to think about. But but still, people have to make a living. They have to pay rent, mortgages, get the kids to school. And you're doing that within that system that you described. Um, So when you think about that, Owen, I mean, so I'm interested that you started with talking about the systems that we're part of, that we may not even be conscious that we're part of those systems. Where do you come out on the individual change versus system change? I mean, I know that's a polarity um, and and we talk a lot about polarities in this, in this space, but where do you come out on that?
1: Um, I, I suppose individuals change systems, don't they? by acting collectively. Um, One of the cultural manifestations of our current way of life is an over-individualization of things, of people, where we have lost touch with uh, the everydayness of collective efficacy, for example, the sense that we're stronger together and that if we face a challenge together, we can meet it together and that all of our resources and collective intelligence and willpower and um you know power uh is much much more strong when we when we do things together so it's a strange kind of dichotomy it's always kind of landed even the question lands funny with me because i'm kind of going well you know aren't we in that system we're the consumers and we're also the people working in it and we're the ones who are facilitating it and benefiting from it in in kind of micro ways by buying things like cars and flights and all that kind of stuff Um, yeah so individuals make up systems so if you want systems to change individuals have to change it's a a chicken and egg.
2: But Owen do you think that the systems are deliberately or or deliberately or not they they are set up in a way that make it very difficult at, at times for individuals to come together for individuals to connect with one another for communities to even meet and and do that collective action that, you know, we're put in our in our silos, often turned away from one another, often pitted against one another. And that that idea of, yeah, collective action can seem very far off for many individuals.
1: I agree entirely. Um, and and there's an interesting part to the start of your question. Is there a deliberateness to that? In other words, are, are some people directly or indirectly, benefiting from uh, everyone being a bit disconnected, um, compliant consumers, if you want, buying stuff and working. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there is a bit of that. And without leaning too hard hard into the sense of maybe paranoia that that, that can evoke, um, there are definitely very significant vested interests at play who do not want things to change. And right. the, you know, the the kind of power of short-term profit and gain in, you know, the, whatever the dif- different industries are, you know, the agricultural industry or the aviation industry or the, or whatever it is, you know, we all know the kind of the main polluting industries. And um, the, the the only piece about that I would, uh, aside from community groups like your group and, and others and this group and the group I'm involved in starting to coalesce is that we all do have um, a way and part of that is by taking ownership of what we can take ownership of ourselves. So that's really important. So I think a lot of people look at the big system stuff and, and it's it becomes overwhelming. Be over, yeah. And, and they disconnect.
0: Yeah.
1: Whereas yeah. even though doing small, small things, um, like starting up a community garden, for example, or, you know, kind of reducing the amount of meat you're eating or cycling to work, and those feel like tiny in the grand scheme of stuff. But actually that's what provides you with the internal permission if you want to start connecting with people to start raising your voice and joining in that kind of social momentum uh, and one person at a time forms a massive group you know you don't have a massive group immediately it, it has to be joined uh, so i i do think that we we need to meet the dilemma of the overwhelming power of the system with doing what i can and joining with others and eventually that does build up into you know that idea of a social tipping point we get to, um, you know, some interesting um, experimental data saying that if you get 25% of people in a group all singing off the same hymn sheet, it's enough to turn the whole group. Uh, and one in four has always, to me, seemed like an achievable goal. So I, d- I don't lose hope in the face of that, but I do think you're, the perception is bang on. You know, there is a power that wants things to stay as it is. Do you
2: think that if that, those powers, if we go into my paranoid space of of deliberateness, that if those vested interests had an opportunity to be part of a more meaningful community or a slower pace of life, um, I don't know, I'm picturing, you know, my idyllic sense of community, um, that perhaps the way that the world works entirely would be turned on its head. I think that often... uh, you know, money, profit, um, all the things that people seek, uh, you know, in is often a replacement uh for true connection with other humans, true connection with uh, other creatures on our planet. And yeah, it's I'm often like, should we kidnap people and and force them to to live in a, you know, <laughs> some kind of idyllic community for a while and maybe they'll they look at the world differently and we'll all benefit from it. It's quite extreme. but uh, a
0: Strange I, kind of utopian vision, all right?
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I was very lucky last year. I got to take part in um, kind of a self-rewilding uh, course. I don't know if that's the word you'd use, but it was called The Wild Awakening. And it involved a lot of kind of community building, spending time in circle and in... Uh, you know, working together in a on a very kind of small scale, lighting with the fire, cooking, preparing food, making things and communicating with each other in a very respectful kind of slow down manner. And I thought if, if <sighs> I remember thinking I'm so lucky and if other people could experience this,
0: I think the world would be a better, a better place. A better place. I don't know. Yeah, but one of the things kind of related to that that always strikes me though is that I've worked in big corporates and um, spent a lot of my time working in big corporates and with senior people and so on. And they are all engaged in their communities in different ways. A lot of them are very involved in charities or in, you know, good works or whatever. But yet they're still going to work and and they're caught up in a treadmill of having to generate profits, having to generate quarterly results. So, I mean, if you look at, for example, um, you know, the CEO of, pick a company, BP or whatever, they're probably good, decent people and good family people like we are. But the question is, why, how, I mean, I suppose, what's the role of leadership and how can, how can people like that break out of that system that they're part of, if assuming they want to? Because it's obviously very lucrative to be part of that system as well. If I had the answer for that, Anna, <laughs> I don't know. It's something I think about a lot. I'm hoping Owen's yeah. going to tell me how that's going to happen. <laughs> and
1: I, I don't. I don't have the answer to that, but some ideas maybe. Um, the, a bit. I mean, I, I kind of agree with you, Katrina. I do think that for the most part, most people aren't driven by excessive wealth as a, a kind of a, a primary thing that they need or want in life. And, uh, you know, a stable, a healthy lifestyle with you know, sufficiency of that idea and public good is more than enough to satisfy the vast majority of people. Um, I'm not sure if George Monbiot says this or he quotes someone else who says it, but I remember him saying, we're a nation of altruists governed by psychopaths. Um, so it seems to be that there might be some people with a great deal of power and wealth who really don't think like that, and they could not care less about that notion And this is where I think policy and government and uh, international law, and you can see some movements around this happening now, where there is now the UN, for example, yesterday just designated um, a a legal frame so that countries can be held responsible. Um, That big movements around taxation, for example, at an international level, diplomacy, that's what will shift, I suspect, some of those people who really aren't attracted to what you've just described, out of their positions, perhaps. I suspect we're going to need a lot more stick than carrot for mm. some. Um, but I, I think the ground up movement has a, has a big role to play in that, because you, you can only get wealthy selling stuff if lots of people are willing to continue to buy it. And at some point, the vast majority of people, if communication is better, if government policy is better, uh, there, there will be opportunities for people to move in a different direction. Uh, so that's kind of where my, my hope lies. Some of that hope comes from what we've just been through with COVID, uh, which was just this lesson in extraordinary social change over a very short time span that if you tried to predict, you know, 10 years ago, people would have said, there's no way that's going to happen. And with this really potent high level collective communication. Uh, aspiring to values that we all kind of share for the most part. We ended up shutting down most of the economy um, and moving dramatically our social kind of behavior for what was essentially a self-protective motive. We've got to take care of each other and protect ourselves. And now, I, I know. The, mm-hmm, go sorry, on, sorry.
0: I was going to say, I think in Ireland, Ireland had a very strong, cohesive response. Yeah. I think as a small country and as a fairly connected country, um, I think had a very cohesive response to COVID compared to other countries. Um, but my but then, but now I go three years later, it's like we've got collective amnesia. We've completely forgotten about it, you know, and, you know, it's still it's still out there, you know. So um, so I, I suppose it's the how do you make it come back again to your question about being stuck? I mean, how do you make things stick um, and how do you embed longer term change?
1: Yeah. So maybe just to land on that question and a few lenses that might illuminate some of our inertia um, and our stuckness. So one is the idea of the bystander effect. And there's, there's different concepts that are kind of close to this. Um, but the idea is that we're, we're very poor at probability thinking and we tend to uh, behave in relation to what's happening now. So something that might happen in the future isn't as powerful in shaping our behavior as something that's happening now. So when we hear a message like, you know, the UN says we're heading towards an unlivable future, one of the first things that people do after they get a bit of a shock, because it is, you know, frightening and most people I think are concerned, they look around and they say, well, is everyone acting like, you know, this is a a big emergency and, you know, people are driving their cars and flying on holidays and eating their burgers and,
0: yeah,
1: doesn't seem like much, much is going on here and my house isn't flooding right now and I have to get to work. So it slides out of consciousness and uh, and on we go. And and that kind of is part of our nature. The the way that we counter that, uh, because you'll notice that with COVID, the bystander effect didn't have a problem at all in making this change. In fact, it moved in the opposite direction, that the the social reinforcement and modeling of distancing and wearing masks and all that stuff, staying in your two kilometers or five kilometers, uh, was really powerful and if people moved out of it they were they were kind of you know there was a pretty strong social reaction against anyone who was breaking the rules kind of thing. Um, that at the moment we have that social dimension pushing us in inertia, what we need is this to recognize this is a social momentum that's needed and there's some ingredients in that high level government messaging, clarity enough with the ambiguity we do need to change here's what we need to do. A hierarchy of changes here are the really big things and then supporting those changes now we've started with that a bit a bit like the grant system for insulating homes for example the but legislation still, right the legislation we're still um subsidizing aviation fuel to a massive tune we're still subsidizing
0: fossil um, fuel
1: companies fossil fuel companies we're still subsidizing um you know the the beef and dairy sector so the, the government has to decide we are, we're going to show the community as the most powerful actors in the community, how we need to, and that means standing up to vested interests and all that comes with that. And the big rows that will happen, no doubt there'll be some big rows and some groups will have to change way more than others because they're the biggest polluters. That's because it's not because it's unfair on them. It's because they're the biggest polluters. Um, and there and should be a just. And they need to
0: be helped to change as well. Exactly. I mean, a just so, transition is yeah.
1: essential. You know, everyone yeah. needs to feel this is a fair fair game and that, you know, if if farmers have to change, for example, that there's support for that. If the aviation industry needs to contract, there should be support for that, et cetera, et cetera. If that happens and there is genuine political modeling of behavioral change and the need for social change and the values are, are clearly spelled out as to why this is important, we do this as a populace, which happened during COVID, if we get that kind of messaging in kind of consistent, over time, which we're not getting now, it comes at us in in little bursts of fear and, you know, oh my God, and then I'm busy again. If if we get the right messaging, the right communication and the right supports all happening at the same time for over time, we will see social change. That's how social change uh, happens when it's top top down driven. The other lens on social change is the kind of bottom up uh, activism, protest, uh the de- demanding change and actually they're kind of related aren't they because yeah you don't get the political change unless there's a, a witnessing of bottom-up demand for that change occurring and politicians won't feel emboldened to stand up to vested interests unless it becomes politically and socially unacceptable to no longer not do that uh, so people have to start demanding um and that's why protest and communication with politicians around this stuff is so important as part of that Absolutely. change kind of cycle if you want so that's the bystander effect we're all stuck no one else is kind of moving because well it looks like there isn't a problem so it must be that there's no problem another one that kind of interests me is 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 the idea of um denial as a form of protection against what we spoke about earlier on the sense of overwhelm and i can't let in what is happening because it's so overwhelming to to imagine that everything is crumbling, the whole natural system is crumbling, the, the ice caps melting, our food systems under threat, our global security under threat, hundreds of millions of people at, at risk of drought and displacement. Even saying those things and allowing them to be true consciously for a moment is deeply difficult. It's, it's a very painful. hard, yeah. it's a very painful thing to do. Yep. And, you know, you'd want to be stone cold not to be moved by that in some way. And one of the ways that we have of coping with that reality is by disconnecting from it. How do we help people stay connected to lean into the deeply uncomfortable reality? And there's lots of really interesting stuff around this. Uh, Joanna Macy, for example, has some lovely notions about from a kind of a psycho spiritual uh, lens on how we lean into the uncomfortable. And I suppose the piece around it that I think has real potency on a very pragmatic level is very much along the lines of what you were talking about earlier is that sense of building up community resilience. How do how do I deal with that overwhelm? I do it with others. Yeah. So and my instinct by the way when I first kind of fell into this consciousness and became like I couldn't sleep for a couple of weeks and was really frightened and upset by what was occurring um was to reach out and find people and by the way i I had all these stigmatized ideas about what environmentalists might be like and a lot of that wasn't particularly positive you know crusties crusties and suddenly i'm in this tribe and i said i didn't know that i was changing my identity (laughs) I'm, i'm just freaked out about the world burning you know can i can i keep my identity
0: yeah, it's um, like um, Kira on who is my co-host on the podcast, she always goes, I'm not one of those mad people. Right. <laughs> I,
1: I didn't sign up for that. I just yeah. want the world to be safe and I want my yeah. kids to be safe. And, you know, so I very clearly have said I'm not an environmentalist. I am not an activist. I'm not a vegetarian. I'm not a vegan. <laughs> I'm not opposed to those things. But that's not my identity. I'm a person. I'm a dad. And I'm freaked out by what's going on. And it's really important to have some people who aren't attached to an ideology, because one of the things that happens is, oh, the climate concern belongs to environmentalists, those people over there, in the same way that housing concerns, you know, belongs to people who are activists around housing and, you know, kind of people who are worried about multiple sclerosis will go out and be concerned about that and have a, a group and they're okay over there, they're concerned about that issue. This is different it belongs to everyone and the ideological kind of ownership of it needs to be the entire country humanity needs to own this uh, so it took a while for me to allow that to be true and it's funny how people respond to you when you start bringing like climate change is a great one for shutting down a conversation if you ever want if you ever don't like people and you want to get out of a room just bring up climate change really effective um, but other people, people who I knew who like I've known for years and I start talking about climate change and they're kind of looking at you funny going, when did you, uh, are, you, what happened to you? are you one of them? Yeah. <laughs> As if suddenly you've grown a different identity. Yeah. It's really interesting, isn't it?
0: It is interesting. And actually, Katrina and I met on the climate change course in DCU. And come back to your point about what you're saying about needing that social reinforcement I mean, I went into that course thinking I was the only one who really cared about all this stuff. And then all of a sudden I found myself in a group of people who are all very highly motivated and energised and want, and coming from very different backgrounds and perspectives and wanted to do something. And And I think for all of us, that was kind of um, reassuring. It was a relief.
2: Mass- massively, Anna. And like, it's interesting oh, when you spoke of, you know, wanting to seek out other people who felt the same way as you. I've had periods and particularly... The period before I started the masters, where it was, I think the there was the, the fires in the Amazon were all over the news. I had small babies. Um and I I spoke to my husband about, you know, the possibility of us building a bunker. Like I wanted, I didn't want to lean into a community. I wanted to run away from it all and not be, I just felt had no faith in other humans, uh, nest- not, not, not even really in myself uh, as a mother. I felt like I couldn't protect my children from this. And my gut instinct was to run away. And, and uh, you know, I realised I could barely put up a shelf, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, become a self-sufficient uh, homesteader or anything like that. Um,
0: I've bought books about it. <laughs> I don't know if that's helpful.
1: Uh, you, might, you might need them. Keep them.
0: <laughs> I'm hoping my I'm hoping my boys will be handy.
2: <laughs> yes, I, I did make my daughter do woodwork, so you know uh, that's a lot of pressure on one person. But uh, yeah, I, I suppose I I wanted to, to turn away um from from it all and yeah starting the master was was a was a a big kind of turning point for me that realization that other people feel the same other people want to act and yeah and that that idea that we were all from different backgrounds as well Anna was huge you know it wasn't all of a, a similar or same ilk it was uh people from a financial background, an education background, a zoology background you know it was. Um, it was really, really interesting. I kind of was expecting, yes, a bunch of environmentalists, and, <laughs> and I, I don't think that that's a, a derogatory no. word, but it can often be used in a in a derogatory way. You know? I think
0: those labels are probably not helpful. I think that's what you were getting at, Owen. You know, the more we mm-hmm. can just get back to, we're all people who, as Owen said, this is about humanity and everybody working together, no matter who you are, what your label is. I, th- I think that's a more helpful way to look at it personally for mm-hmm.
1: me. I was reading some, uh, some work by, I think the research name is Aldrich, and anything I reference I'll email on. You can link it into the, the Twitter just in case people Brilliant. are looking for it after. Um, and he was talking about some research about whether wealth, capital, or social capital made communities more resilient to climate shocks. And there's actually some research on this that the communities that had better social capital were more resilient than people who had wealth. So having connections to the person down the road who can build a shelf, um, to the person who knows how to grow certain kinds of food, to the person who knows how to fix light bulbs, you know, that, that kind of community resource of capacity is far, far, far more valuable in certain circumstances. Than wealth. I mean, if you can't go to a shop and buy something, what right. do you do? You have to yeah. turn to your neighbour. You have to turn to the people around you. So, in the face of climate shocks, in particular, so this in the aftermath of floods, for example, or the aftermath of um, you know hurricanes uh, in the U.S., social capital started to be seen differently. And I think that there's something extraordinarily important about that, right? And in Ireland. I don't think we've drifted as far from social capital as other Western countries have. So I think we're closer, you know, exactly as your community work is showing, that if you if you have a good idea with somebody who's willing to put in the work to get it moving, you'll find people to participate. I mean, it's it yeah. really is just about having the energy and the yeah, effort. And you
2: often- you often don't have to look very far. I no. I say that uh, in some of my workshops to the children that I uh, I'm teaching about waste and water. It's like you have people in your community that are champions that know how to save water, that know how to re you know reuse things, that know how to build, that know how to repair, and you might not realize it until you have those conversations. And I remember being at an event a couple of years ago, and meeting a load of other groups in Dublin 7, all working on similar similar things. And we've all started collaborating since. But it was, <laughs> you know, you walk down your, your road on your way home from work or on your way back from the school run and you think, yeah, I'm the only one that wants a one-way system or less cars or, you know, what more trees or whatever it might be. And suddenly when you start having those conversations, you realise that you're surrounded by a like-minded or... Yeah, a uh, very potentially resilient community that have yep. a wealth of skills and knowledge that when brought together and in the right space is hugely powerful.
1: Yeah. There's actually some research to back that up too, that if you ask people to estimate other people's level of climate concern, they will underestimate it. They'll say that very few people are as scared of it as I am. But when you actually ask the people, they're all as scared as each other. And that's been repeatedly shown over and over, that in some ways, we haven't got the social cohesion around our common concern here. We are all vested interests in a stable social environment and a stable natural environment because we rely on it for our health and safety and our futures. So we're we're all kind of in this. We just haven't got the social cohesion around it just yet or the signaling around it. You're absolutely right. And I've I've noticed myself being very reluctant to even speak about it. Uh, in certain circumstances and then kind of feel like you're taking a bit of a risk and then people move back to you with more interest than you have and you're kind of going, yeah. I, was, I wasn't expecting that.
0: I, I had an <laughs> experience, play, yeah. yeah, I had an experience like that in the last couple of weeks where a, a sports club that I'm part of, we brought a motion around having looking at our missions as a sports club and I had to stand up in the AGM and, and talk to people about it. And I thought hey, people are here because they have a common interest, which has nothing to do with climate change. And I could they could go, oh, there's nothing to do with us. Go away. There were seventy people in the room, and seventy people voted for the motion. And we had, I had at least half a dozen people spoke up in support of it. There's nobody challenged it. I was I was blown away. And these are people from ages, you know, eighty to you know, teenage practically. And it was so interesting. And one of the things that was interesting to me, and maybe there's a bit of a psychology about this as well, is that some of them said they work for companies that are focused on sustainability. And they're going, I see this every day at work, how important it is. I think we should also apply it here. So I kind of thought, you know, for all, I'm very critical of companies for greenwashing and so on. uh, But but yes, big companies are. There is something rubbing off on people when they're hearing it at work and they're seeing a focus on it that they're then bringing home with them and into their community. So I just thought it was a really interesting uh, ripple effect that we were seeing. Um, and did you not expect it at all? Were no, we you- knew there was some resistance, and so we. I, so I stood up, not knowing, not knowing if people would. I knew some people there were very supportive, but I, but I didn't know to what extent. I was blown away by the support. It's amazing. It's, it, it is. And look, and look, again, it's not going to change. The, it's, well, I mean, it's not going to reduce our emissions dramatically, but it's a group of people focused on something else that are now looking at that and working together on it. That's what we need more of. Yeah. It's the everybody. Yeah.
2: The,
1: the everywhere. Yeah, I was quoting everything.
0: that everybody everywhere yeah. all at once. That's what yeah. Antonio yeah. Gutierrez yeah. said. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: And the, the visibility of that is so important because the, it's the invisibility of it that's part of our inertia, isn't it? Because the yes. more visible uh, collective action and common kind of agreement is to people, the more willing they are to lean. Uh, there's a lovely uh, essay written by one of my favorite uh, climate psychologists called Claire Kelly. She's an assistant professor in uh, Trinity College, Dublin, and she runs the climate change module there. And she's written a lovely essay called "The Stories We Tell, The Stories We're Told" as a kind of a counterpoint to the kind of doom-laden narrative that we're we're a social, we're a, a selfish race, and we can't help ourselves but consume ourselves to death and fall off the cliff because you know that's just how people are, and we can't get out of our own way because of this almost selfish genetic predisposition towards capitalist growth which when it's examined is, is nonsense, but yet it right. is a very potent narrative in our collective psyche and something that you hear people say all the time, well, you know, it's just how people are. and you know, Sugar shoulders, we can't help, we can't help that. Those are, you know, the people in the private jets, won't well, sure, that's what they'll do. Right. When actually, when you think about the story you've just told, um, Anna, and your your group, uh, Katrina, there's and there's so many other stories, that demonstrate collective goodwill, collective efficacy, empathy. Um, The fact that we created a health service, for example, um, which is purely for a common good, extraordinarily expensive, very hard to work, but we're very dedicated to it. No one's saying let's throw away the health service because um, it's too expensive and too difficult. So we we have these capacities when, when I think political leadership and other forces move. And maybe we're back to this idea that the ground-up stuff is really starting to swell. I think it is, and we're really wait, we're waiting for the politicians to to kind of to catch up, to catch up and realize that there's more in supporting that than there is in the vested interest groups that they're clearly supporting. You know, there's no if you if you give tax incentives to polluting industries, um, you're clearly supporting them. And you know, I, I understand there's a dynamic there with kind of economic growth being a thing that's seen as being the most important thing uh, that we have. And, and, you know, the idea of degrowth is almost like a, I don't know, it's very strange when you say that to people. It's like their, their heads are about to pop I, off their I, shoulders. They,
0: I know, it's hilarious. Con- <laughs> it's like you're putting us back to the Stone Ages. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, and it's, but it's how we can how we think about growth needs to change because, yeah. well, in Ireland, GDP is meaningless anyway, But it's but we need to stop thinking about growth as purely economic growth. Yeah, so but that's I think that's a whole other episode. Actually, we should do a degrowth episode as well. Yeah. Um, and, uh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> so in terms of oh, and I'm curious, interested to hear your perspective. You've you've touched a little bit about on kind of the conversations that we have and how to have hope and how to how to keep positive momentum building. How do you cope personally? I mean, I think one of the things we hear a lot from people is just the anxiety that this brings and you know from what does psychology tell us about how people can cope with that anxiety? And as you said earlier, lean maybe lean into it or live with it um, so that we're not in denial, because denial is a very happy place to be.
1: Yeah. Well, the, the first thing to say is that uh, climate anxiety or eco anxiety or eco distress, different terms broadly talking about similar things, uh, is becoming more and more prevalent. And the research around that is pretty kind of solid now that across lots of different countries, um, there's a really big study published uh, in 21 by Caroline Hickman, I think was the name of the lead author and, and several others. Ten countries, a thousand young people between 16 to 24 in each of those countries has 10,000 participants, 70 um, percent saying they're at least moderately concerned and over 40 percent saying it's impacting on their capacity to function in day to day life. Uh, and, and, and other research outside of that cohort as well. So it's not just young people as if it's only their problem. Lots of people are feeling uh, very concerned. The Lots of people are conscious of climate change, though the research establishing that, we all know about it. So, But as we become more conscious and concerned, anxiety is coming up with that. So one of the questions is, is that anxiety a mental health problem? And it's an interesting kind of dilemma because it, it bounces into the way that we normally conceptualise anxiety or depression, for example, as if they're disorders to be treated typically by a mental health professional in a setting with various um, ways of doing that. And there's a certain amount of validity to that. It's not that that's an entirely broken way of thinking, but it really doesn't fit comfortably with the anxieties and the distress that people experience in relation to climate. And a big part of that is because often the anxiety disorder that we might think about typically and maybe let's say something like social anxiety disorder um, often has an unrealistic uh, perception of the degree of threat or danger in an environment and part of the treatment is to cognitively reframe that go through kind of some exposure response kind of management you know dealing with anxiety physiologically and in your body through breathing mindfulness etc Uh, rethinking your scenario getting enough exposure to the environment to realize it's not in fact dangerous and that's a kind of the way of treating it that doesn't work for climate change it is a threat it is happening and we are doing it to ourselves so it's an interesting kind of dilemma it's more like a reasonable response to a very threatening situation climate change is a threat to human health We've, we've you know everyone who's anyone is established that at every level in society, um, you know, WHO, UN, etc. Climate change is a threat to human health. So when something threatens us, we're supposed to feel anxious about it. It's weird if you don't. Right. Uh, so it's the people who aren't feeling anything about climate change that I'm a little bit worried about. <laughs> if you're If you're distressed, all it means is you're paying attention and you've taken in what's occurring. Now, that doesn't mean that that anxiety can't at some point for some people become disabling or distressing to a point where it overwhelms their capacity to engage in normal day-to-day life. It absolutely can. So it's not that there isn't a need for support or a way of framing or thinking about that, even within mental health professionals who might be working with people who have climate distress as part of their presenting difficulties, and that's an increasing phenomenon. Um, But more broadly in society, I think, we need to recognise that, It is distressing to be alive right now, because we're humans. Right. And we care about things that might hurt us and the things we love and the people we love. Therefore, we need to address it from that very kind of basic human engagement level. And part of the way of addressing climate anxiety that's often talked about is the idea of action being the solution to anxiety. Because part of anxiety is a sense of feeling of powerlessness or nothing I can do about it, we're kind of a passive recipient to something bad out there that's happening. Well, the the solution to that is to get engaged in activism or kind of reckoning with your own lifestyle and some kind of means of I feel empowered like I'm doing something about it. And that works, at least for some people some of the time. But there's a caveat to that, and it's a really important one. There's a paradox in engaging in activism, and this is kind of part of all of our struggles I think, is that when you get close to the issue, and as you said earlier, you can't stop thinking about it, you can't unknow it, then engaging in the, the problem-focused or solution-focused approach to dealing with the anxiety involves proximity to the thing that's causing anxiety. Right. You, you realize that some of this is beyond your control, enter a, a renewed sense of powerlessness. <clears throat> so it's kind of a paradox that on the one hand, engaging with others gives you a sense of solidarity and empowerment, and I can do something about it. On the other hand, it makes you keenly aware and, and robs you of the freedom of day-to-day denial. <laughs>
0: yeah, I want the freedom of denial. <laughs> right,
1: it becomes less accessible. It's yeah. harder to, st- if you're very engaged with this, it's much harder to slip out of consciousness. So I, I think what we need to find our way through that is, first of all, the permission. I heard someone talking recently about a climate cafe where there is no call to action allowed. Yep. Right. And I thought that that's bang on. There has to be a space where you're just allowed to talk about how you're feeling about it without the pressure and demand to engage in it in that very kind of focused activist way. So there's a human coping bit to this, which includes permission to not talk about it. It includes permission to be imperfect in your contribution. The blog I wrote that you referenced earlier on references an imperfect comp- contribution. I need permission to not be perfect at this. Right. In order to stay engaged with it, it's a real paradox. And people then say, oh, hippo, hypocrite, you're eating a burger or whatever it is you're doing. And saying, yeah, but I'm also doing da 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 da. And on balance, I'm doing a lot better than I was last year and I'm doing as much as I can. And we should, there's a social good in that that we should all recognize. Anytime someone does anything, it's good. even if it's relatively small, it should be rewarded by social gratitude. Thank you for taking the bus today. Thank you for cycling your bike. Thank you for choosing the vegetarian option. Thank you for buying recycled clothing. Whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. It's it's on that social level. We need to help each other along this journey, and uh, allow ourselves be imperfect, so that we can cope with the distress that comes with that better. Because I know I'm accepted in that. I know that everyone else is imperfect too. So my distress from when I think, God, I'm in, I'm after ordering that in the menu now. What a weight to carry around as if it's your own, you're the only one carrying the burden. Whereas if we all know that we're allowed a little bit of give and take, but we're all doing our best and moving the ship generally in that direction, I think that's a lot to ask of ourselves. And think about the fact that we're doing that in the face of powerful corporate, economic, and social pressures pushing us in the other direction. It's not like we're swimming against the tide by making the mistake, we're pushing against something that's very powerful. So we we need to be kind to ourselves in that and compassionate and say, I need a break from this for a while. I need to not, I remember saying over Christmas last year to my brother, we exchange um, a lot of climate um, stuff. And we both have established a permission now to say, stop sending me shit that's gonna freak me out, okay? I need to get sleep at (laughs) night. (laughs) And at at Christmas I said, I'm not thinking about this for two weeks. I just have to not think about it for a while doesn't mean i don't care it doesn't mean i'm a hypocrite it's just i'm just a human trying to survive it <laughs> right and i well, think, I
0: mean, yeah you said earlier you used the word resilience i think earlier and i think if you we're not going to solve this overnight so the other the other risk with being an activist is you take some action you go in a protest you expect things to change and you can get very disheartened if you don't see change happening and you can get i know i have to watch myself not to be cynical um you know, about people's motives and why is change not happening. So I think what you're talking about, you can't keep going unless you give yourself that space to rebuild and, and to be resilient.
1: Yeah.
0: I suppose that's
2: lessons that I try and teach my my children or I take from them as well, because that kind of overwhelm um, has reared its head in our house. Uh, is currently an ongoing... Uh, uh, sense of being for my, my 10-year-old son, uh, lots of crying at night time and am I not going to live till, you know, to be an adult. Uh, lots of fear, lots of questions and answers of which aren't, <laughs> I don't have positive or hopeful answers to give to him a lot of the time. Yeah, I, I hold him and say, "You, this is an absolutely normal feeling to have. This is a huge, huge... Thing we're facing that we you know and you have my full permission to feel this right now and I hold him and I um you know rub his head and kind of pause whatever tv show I was watching when he comes down because it's a it's a regular occurrence at the moment I think he's what I would have considered for my other children they went through a death phase uh he's going through it but in uh, to do with kind of climate anxiety at the moment and I also say to them that it's it's OK to take a break from it. And I, I model that in our house. You know, I I can be they refer to me as a depressing parent or, you know, <laughs> with the, you know, I mean, God, I've showed them videos of uh, male chicks being macerated when they, you know.
0: I, and you wonder why they're having nightmares? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I
2: definitely <laughs> I definitely have fed into those nightmares. Why are you anxious? But,
1: Here's, here's some animals being torn apart.
2: <laughs> yes, look at this baby being taken from uh, its mother. Anyway, yes. Yeah, so, no, I I suppose I we I take, give them permission to take time off from it as well. And I had a child ask me the other day during a water workshop. They said to me, and it made me so upset, said, does this mean I can never have a water fight again? Oh, and I had to kind of stop what I was doing and stop the workshop and say, you absolutely can and should have a water fight again. I said, but maybe if we all take those small and it kind of harks back to what you were saying there, Owen, about the the everybody you know, that everybody doing something, um, as opposed to one person doing the perfect job or, you know, the, you know, the impossible perfect environmentalist. But that, you know, if if the whole class started to reduce their water usage or, you know, conserve rainwater and all that sort of stuff that there is absolutely scope for water fights. And I recommended they do it on a on a, d- a dry day or when there's uh, vegetables out the back that need watering. But it just that I saw that the weight of the topic on this child's shoulders. And yeah. I really wanted to not feed into that guilt that they were feeling at such a young age, it was second class, you know, and for, for them to say, does that mean I can never have a water fight again? Kind of broke my heart a little bit. And yes, we all need to make changes in our life, but we are, we still do need to have fun and time off and that doesn't mean find, private
0: jets mm-hmm. or. <laughs> yes. You know. Find joy, but not in private jets. Yes. Um, yeah. But yeah. There's,
1: there's, there's so much good in what you're saying. Um, The idea of co-regulation around overwhelming fear for children, around climate change is massively important. They need us to be the ones who are dealing with the emotions so that they can, and what you said, really resonates a lot in that way. Um, Also, that question is, I mean, it's such a haunting question, isn't it? But I I think what's missing is an answer that we all have about, and that this goes for everything, every um, behavior that has negative environmental consequences. How how much of it is okay? How much flying is okay? How much red meat is okay? How much driving is okay?
2: And who decides that? Yeah. Right,
1: and we we just, we don't, there's a gaping hole in our social contract with the world about a new set of social norms that are sustainably informed. And you end up in that case with a real sense of polarization uh, I'm never flying again versus to hell with that. I am I need to fly for work. You know, right. or I love red meat, so I'm going to eat it versus I'm vegan and you're all cruel and horrible for even thinking it. So we, we don't have a way of saying, well, our water usage this month is this because that's you know how much we've gotten. We're all that's in line with the sustainable water usage, the National Sustainable Water Usage Plan. Do we have it? No, we don't. Um, therefore, it's OK to use water this month. Um, Or or same with red meat, that we don't have a reference point. And I think that leaves us very lost psychologically because we're, we're kind of we're left with polarities and almost a sense of absolute right and wrong as opposed to this is what we're all doing together.
0: Yeah, and you're taking my car away from me, or you're taking my parking away from me. Yeah, so people then get defensive and want to put their arms around whatever it is that they feel that's been taken away from them. Um, I think that's really a really interesting thing to think about. Um, And to your point earlier, I think if you can even look and say, "But I still eat red meat, but maybe I eat less than I did. Maybe I only eat it one day a week." You know, and every little bit counts. And you know, can we keep? If everybody felt that way we'd make progress.
2: And I think that, you know, a sense of sufficiency isn't really a balanced ideal in, in our world on a global scale at all. You know, there's people who have way more than enough. There's people who don't have enough. There's people who are scared that they won't have enough in the future. So they're, you know, they'll go on the two holidays this year because next year they might have a bad year or they might, you know, that, you know, there's sustainability and then there's sufficiency. And that that really hasn't been looked at enough. What is what is enough for us humans? What 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 do we need? What don't we need? What do we need less of? What do we need more of? And oftentimes the thing we need more of is not a thing at all. Um, it's time. It's, you know, love, it's connection. It's all those things that aren't things. Um, um, tangible you know physical things but uh, yeah sufficiency is not you know not spoken about enough it's always you know I want more I need less I you know I want to be thinner I want to be bigger I want to be you know it's when when are we just grand
0: <laughs> but it's but it's but it's also we've been socialized <laughs> into that too that you have to chase the next experience i mean that the the ads for holidays start in january you know we're we're also as as Owen said earlier pushing against a whole massive um societal expectation around all that too
2: but though no, it's such a a recent phenomenon, like mm-hmm, it is, you know, and it's we, we're made to feel, and we forget like, that, yeah. Like that's not how I lived as a child, and I'm, you know, despite the grey hair, not that you're a young one. <laughs> I'm a young one, <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, it's it's like we, we've sped up so quickly that we can't see back. You know, we can't see the past in a, in a in any kind of what's the word. Rational lens. It's it's like oh, this is the way we do it. This is the way it's done. This is the the trajectory we're on now, and we can't go back. Oh, don't you know? We can't go back there. Uh, yeah. And yeah, it's it's a it's a mad concept concept.
0: <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Um, guys, I'm very conscious of time. This conversation I could be part of this conversation for hours. Um, but we- I, could li- I could listen to Owen all day. Oh my- Absolutely. I feel wow. as if I've, got, I've been, we should, you should be charging us for therapy, Owen, because mm. it was very, very yeah. helpful. Um, but I mean, just any sort of closing thoughts before we wrap up. Um, and I think this is definitely a subject, this whole conversation, I think will resonate with a lot of people. And I think we'll probably come back to it again. But any closing thoughts or tips or advice or things to say, do read. Whatever.
2: Will I go first? You go first.
1: I'm thinking. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I suppose my uh, tips or advice for for dealing with the the overwhelm uh, and and suppose things that I do in my personal life spend spend time in nature, spend time. You know, I I spend time with my children. Learn from them. Learn from the seasons and the cycles that are happening in the natural world and spend as much time out in it as I can um, and join groups like Connecting Cabra. And if you don't have one in your area, set one up and look around and and meet the people in your community. And it, you'll be amazed and heartened and hopeful from those experiences.
0: Hmm. What would you I, add
1: to I, that, I, Owen? Uh Not a huge amount. I think that's that's really solid. Um, to those who are, I I expect this, this, uh, podcast might have a fairly informed audience. People are already through the Rubicon as it were, and have already fallen down the rabbit hole and realized (laughs) they're in the matrix. Um, for, for those who are listening, who this might be feel newish, um, staying with the problem involves talking to other people and while it can be distressing i think the really surprising part of this journey for me has been that the endeavor towards solutions has within it all of the best stuff that life and humans have to offer connection community health sustainability love uh, time in the natural world these are not bad things Um, So while it it can be overwhelming and frightening to move towards the subject, I think it's important to also acknowledge that in creating the solutions, we are leaning into the best of what life has to offer.
0: That is a lovely way to finish, I think. and um, could not agree more. And it's like poetry, actually. Um, thank you so much for that, Owen and Katrina. It's been a great conversation. Like I say, this could go on for hours, um, but we have to unfortunately bring it to a halt now because um, I think we have to go and feed kids and make sure they haven't wrecked the house and all those good things. Um, But thank you guys so much. That is it from us for this special episode of the Climate Alarm Clock. I hope you got as much out of it as I did. And if you liked it, please share it. Tell your friends about it. And you can also, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash alarm. And you can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Mastodon, Twitter, and whatever social media you're on. That's it for now, and we will be back again soon, so take care. Bye.